0: This is a head podcast. Welding instructor Alex DeClair knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at slash Metaverse Impact.
1: Hey everybody, Adam here. We've got a two-part episode for you today. First up, we have a regular episode of Factually, an awesome interview with an amazing expert who you're gonna love. But stick around after that interview to hear my conversation with Dr. John Cohen. Dr. John Cohen is the head of Bioreference, a laboratory that is working to manufacture more coronavirus tests as quickly as possible. So you'll wanna hear that one, very timely, very topical, I think. And with that, on with the show.
0: I don't know the truth.
1: Hello, welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover, and let's talk facts. Over the past decades, millions of people have crossed or have tried to cross America's southern border to establish lives in the United States. And again, that's just a fact. It's a phenomenon that exists without respect to your political or policy viewpoint on it. It is true. But despite this massive movement, rarely do people like myself, a white bespectacled Long Islander with limited and non-existent Spanish skills, actually come into contact with a migrant during their journey. And as a result, many of us don't have firsthand knowledge of who these folks are and what their lives are like. You know, about a decade ago, my girlfriend Lisa and I were on a road trip from Los Angeles to New York. And in Arizona, we had some car issues. Her Ford Ranger just straight up broke down for a week in the middle of our trip. Uh, And we ended up staying a couple extra nights with uh, some of Lisa's Family friends, an older couple who lived in a retirement community pretty close to the southern border. Now, what I didn't realize, what Lisa didn't realize until we were staying with them, is that her friends were also involved with a movement of folks who provide humanitarian aid to migrants. They were not quite an underground railroad, but they weren't too far off. They would go out into the desert and put out jugs of water, for instance, so that migrants wouldn't die of thirst. And they would occasionally offer even more aid than that. On our third night there, we came back to their house from a day at a nearby national park, and uh, they told us that we were going to have a visitor for dinner. He was a young man about my age who had migrated north from Central America and had crossed the border in search of work. He only spoke Spanish, but they helped translate for him, and we learned it was his second time making the trip, that he knew exactly the uh, farm that he was headed for, and that he sent money back to support his family. After dinner, our friends drove him to a local church the next stage on his journey, and obviously I never saw him again. And now, look, I'm not going to do that thing where I say, oh, this one chance encounter with a person unlike me changed my view of the issue forever. Right. I mean, that's a cliche, and it's frankly an insulting cliche, because how much could I really learn from such a brief experience? No, what it did do, though, was remind me of how little I actually knew. You know, I read articles. I listened to podcasts. I thought I knew something about immigration in America. But what I didn't know was who the folks migrating actually were, what their stories were, what their lives were like. It made me aware of my own utter ignorance on the issue. And that's an ignorance that I think a lot of Americans share, quite frankly. We've had so much conversation in this country about whether or not migration should be happening. But let's put that aside for a second. Let's acknowledge that it is happening and ask, since that's the case, shouldn't we at least try to understand it? Shouldn't we understand how people cross, why they choose to make the journey, who they are, how their movement affects their local economy as well as ours, how their families cope if they die along the way? There are so many dimensions to this. There's so much to learn about what this massive migration actually means. And there's so little being studied and especially so very little of this information being shared with us. Well, our guest today has made it his life's work to do just that investigation and share just that information with the public. Jason DeLeon leads the Undocumented Migration Project, which is a long-term anthropological analysis of clandestine border crossings between northern Mexico and southern Arizona. He's a professor of anthropology at UCLA, and he is the winner of a MacArthur, quote, genius grant. So we are very, very lucky and very, very honored to have him on the show. Please welcome Jason DeLeon. Jason, thanks so much for coming on the show and for being our first podcast we're recording over a video conference <laughs> from my, from my house <laughs> yeah, yeah from from your house to mine. my pleasure. <laughs> uh, how are you how are you holding up right now in these uh, uncertain times? Um, pretty good. Uh, you know uh,
2: it's always interesting having a three year old and a six year old locked up in the house. <laughs> And so they've been locked up since what? Uh, we're on three, we're on day five or six now.
1: Man, and with uncertain how many more days are to come. Uh, well, let's talk about your work. I mean, it's it almost seems strange to talk about, to think about our own work at a, at a time like this, but uh, I really am interested in it. Uh, tell me about uh, the Undocumented Migration Project. So the Undocumented Migration Project is a, how do I describe it these days? It's
2: a nonprofit arts research and education collective that is focused on documenting and understanding the social process of clandestine movement between Latin America and the United States. Uh, And it's a project that has evolved over the last decade to include a whole range of things. I mean, it really, it began in 2009, uh, as my attempt to sort of understand border crossings between between northern Mexico and Arizona, using really the the, the lenses of archaeology and ethnography, so talking to living people and also seeing what the things they left behind could tell us about this process. And over the years, that the project has really grown in a lot of different ways to include uh, a lot of forensic science. So trying to understand what happens to the bodies of people who die while crossing places like the Arizona desert. Um, photography documentary film and then increasingly uh, trying to translate this work for public audiences through a whole range of, um, of venues um, and, and most recently um, you know through exhibition work and so it's this kind of a ec- eclectic mix of things that I've that I've been sort of pulling on to try to understand these issues
1: it strikes me as really valuable because for all the you know breath spent on undocumented migration um, it strikes me that most of us understand it uh, pretty poorly, Like, and the the idea that, yeah, we need to know what's going on, what's happening to folks who are crossing, um, we need to actually understand the issue is like, uh, seems very obvious, yet uh, somehow neglected. Well, it's, I think one of the issues that we have is that
2: we're bombarded with information about it through media cycles, but yeah. it, it tends to be pretty, um, pretty simplistic in the narrative that we are that we are are shown. And so for me, it's like, it's not this black and white issue that a lot of people want to make it. Uh, and the deeper that I've got into it over the years and the more ways I've tried to look at it, um, it's just really highlighted how complex this issue is. Um, and, you know, I'm constantly feel like I'm learning something new about this process that I've been studying for, for over 10 years. And so for me, that just signals the, the fact that if I'm learning new stuff every day and becoming confused at at different points of this research. um, What does that then mean for the general public who might think they already kind of understand this issue? Yeah. Uh, So for me, I mean, that's really why why anthropology and sort of trying to draw on this, on this wide range of approaches for me is, is really important for telling different kinds of stories about this issue that
1: people think they already understand. So what do you think the public most misunderstands? What do people get wrong the most? I think that they don't understand
2: that, um, it's not this simple like thing where they imagine like, okay, undocumented migration means someone hops a fence in downtown Nogales, Arizona, and then runs into, into the United States. I think what they don't understand is that the, the crossing of a, of a international boundary without paperwork is just one part of this much larger uh, sequence of events. Um, and then un- undocumented migration doesn't happen in this kind of political or economic vacuum. I mean, especially a lot of Americans. I think when people ask me about, <clears throat> you know, what would comprehensive immigration reform look like? And I say, well, we've got to start dealing with um, political corruption in Latin America. We've got to start dealing with the these um, trade relationships with, with Mexico and Central America that are um, completely one-sided, benefit us and, and, and disproportionately Um, impact those countries in in negative ways. Um, You know, people will say things like, well, isn't corruption and, you know, uh, a a poor economy in those countries, that's those countries' faults, right? But even though we know that everything that's happening in these places is deeply connected to what's what's going on um, through um, U.S. uh, international policies. And so it's really getting people to think, okay, whatever happens in the Arizona desert, that's not um, happening uh, outside of these other kinds of issues And even though it, it, it seems like an issue That could be easily solved by a border wall uh, That's that's a, like a childish understanding Of how this whole mm. thing actually works out And so um, I think And and so of course people have a, a skewed understanding of it Because I think it's complex But also you have a lot of politicians Who um, who want to give people very simple answers To say okay well a border wall is going to fix All of our economic woes in the United States Which mm-hmm. clearly
0: you
1: know is, it, That's a, that's a, um, it's a fallacy And so what is it about a border wall to you that's so misguided? Like what, what, what bigger picture is that missing?
2: Well, I think that what people don't really understand is that um, the bulk of the U S Mexico border has no border wall. Um, It's never had a border wall. And that's because uh, the geopolitical boundary cuts across this wide wide landscape that is incredibly inhospitable that's remote depopulated and it would be impossible to maintain a border wall in these places um you know it'd it'd be prohibitively expensive and you've got the the natural environment which doesn't want to be um you know uh, cordoned off and so even if we could put up a border wall um it would cost us a whole shit ton of money to to maintain. And it's been shown to be completely ineffective because if you have a border, let's say you put up a border wall along the entire US-Mexico border, almost 2000 miles, you don't have enough people to be down there monitoring it. And so, you know, you put a border wall in, in, in parts of the Sonoran Desert you could just hop that fence and there's literally no one there to stop you. Um, You you still have to walk 60 or 70 miles. um, And that's really the border wall. Much of the, (laughs) uh, uh, and and that's really been by design. I mean, what people don't understand about the U S Mexico border is that since the 1990s, we have had this policy in place called prevention through deterrence. And, and it's a pretty simplistic idea. It, it, It was recognized early on that Southern Arizona, parts of Texas, New Mexico were so remote that you didn't need a border wall because if you funneled people in those um, in those directions, you made it impossible to cross the border in urban zones. So San Diego, um, El Paso, you force people into these areas where you don't need a border wall, uh, but you are required now to walk for three to five to seven days across you know some of the most uh, remote landscapes in the Western Hemisphere. And the idea is that if you have to walk for seven days through scorching deserts. Where you can be bit by a rattlesnake, you can die of dehydration or hypothermia. Um, that that in itself isn't is uh, enough of a of, of a of a wall. That that's the deterrence is the natural mm-hmm. landscape, and that's our paradigm. I mean, that's been in place since the '90s. That's that's currently in place now. You don't hear Donald Trump ever talk about this phrase, prevention through deterrence. Um, it's been kind of whitewashed, I think, from a lot of policy documents over the last ten years. But it's very much how we are. Um, maintaining our border security at the moment, and I think what many a lot of people just don't
1: understand that. Mm. What about from a policy perspective? This idea of let's say, okay, the ball, the wall's not literal; it's metaphorical, right? <laughs> right. It's, sure. We're we're going to have maximum security along the border. That's what you know. Uh, he was actually campaigning on, and so let's call it that. Um, what is your view on that policy? What is, what have you learned that throws that policy into a different light? Well, we spend billions of dollars, um,
2: on border security, most of which has been shown to be ineffective or, um, um ambiguous mm-hmm. at, at, uh, uh, at, at, best. And there's this huge industry that benefits from throwing money at, at border security, um, that's is impossible to evaluate whether it works or not and we know that the most um, effective way to stop people from migrating oftentimes is by not hiring them and so when um, you know if people if if people were really concerned about border security and who's coming across um, they would be policing the workforce in the united states because we know Mm. that that's that's what stops people from coming i mean in 2008 obama comes out and he says you know undocumented migration is at the lowest Rate that it's been in decades. We've really secured the border, et cetera, et cetera. That wasn't the case at all. We hadn't changed anything at the U.S.-Mexico border. The economy was in the was in the toilet, and so now suddenly (laughs) there aren't these jobs. People aren't able to come, and and we know that when when our economy is bad, and when when there are no jobs, people are not coming. And if we started to police the workforce in a real, in I mean, and even with the policing of the workforce now, all we do. You know, we do these, these public raids where they, they raid a chicken factory or, a, or a, a pork plant, they arrest a bunch of undocumented people, and they slap the wrist of these employers, and then business goes back, to, back, to, back as usual after, after a few months. If we actually police those places, that would slow down undocumented migration overnight. But of course, mm. th- th- that's what we don't want to do because nobody makes money off of that. But, but the border security um, industrial complex, that, that puts a lot of money in a lot of people's pockets. And so I think that um, that there's a heavy investment in arguing for more border security, even if we know it doesn't work because it's, it's, um, it's, it's a huge, huge moneymaker.
1: Because then everybody gets paid. The chicken plant gets paid because it lets it gets to keep having its uh, migrant workers, and the border security companies, the the security contractors uh, get paid as well. The people building the wall get paid. Absolutely. I mean, it is an, an enormous money maker. And as and as the war on drugs has become
2: increasingly less popular, you now have this war on undocumented uh, immigrants happening, and undocumented migrants, and you know. The, the construction of new detention centers. I mean, that's a huge, a huge moneymaker now for folks. So um, yeah. it's, it's, instead of incarcerating, you know, American citizens, incarcerating undocumented people is this huge, huge way now um, to make money. And, and, you know, and also with this whole border security thing, we haven't, it, it's kind of gone away lately. I mean, we, we have been so focused on kind of demonizing um, migrants mm-hmm. and that's partly because of this, this, um, Uh, you know, this current president and and all of his cronies. um, But also, you know, typically during these political cycles, and when we're looking for looking for a boogeyman, the immigrants are are kind of number one target. But much of the ramping up of border security, people don't really understand happened post 9-11. And so after 9-11, you have the federal government conflating border security immigration security with terrorism. And so suddenly now it's like the next Osama Bin Laden is gonna come across the Arizona desert. So we need to we need to invest in drones in and remote sensing, even though we've never had a, 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 a documented terrorist come through the, the desert. But it was a really savvy way to convince the American public that we needed to throw more money at this border security issue. Um, and if you talk to border patrol agents who signed up post 9-11, a lot of guys, my sort of generation, they will tell you that look, <clears throat> Post 9-11, I wanted to fight terrorism. The Border Patrol started this campaign saying that if you sign up for this agency, you will be fighting terrorism. And so wow. you can all, all these guys who start, who start signing up and then they realize like, you know, I was trying to catch Osama bin Laden and instead I'm chasing these peasant farmers from, from Oaxaca. Um, <laughs> but but yeah. so th- that's part of this whole, this whole history of, of why this stuff has really ramped up. And now we just assume that, that that's what we should be doing is, is beefing up security um, because that's what we've always done.
1: Well, let's talk about the folks who are actually crossing the border, right? Because that's that's who you're studying. That's who you're seeking to understand. Uh, you just said peasant farmers from Oaxaca, right? Tell me about who are the folks who cross, who try to cross, why, and and what happens to them. But but start with who. Well, I think historically,
2: when people hear the word like border crosser, undocumented migrant, um, illegal alien, whatever whatever term that they're using. I think uh, if you hear screaming in the background that's just my kids uh doing God knows what downstairs so um <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh you know, I think that um you know, historically people who were migrating tended to be young Mexican uh males. People who were who were migrating because they they couldn't make a living in um, um in Mexico, um you know, in in recent decades you know, post NAFTA, once the Mexican economy crashes because of NAFTA, you've got this out this outpouring of folks who could no longer make a living farming and um, um, and competing with with um, uh, subsidized American subsidies that were flooding the Mexican market. Um, that went on for a while. Um, post 9/11, the border security starts to harden. Where people were moving back and forth, you know, into in, into the late 90s. Post 9/11, yeah. security ramps up. Now suddenly we started to create this permanent undocumented population here because it now becomes too costly to, to go back and forth. People would, would come here for a, a season. They would go home for Christmas. They would come back. The post nine 11, the border sort of hardens and now it's too expensive and too dangerous to try to, this, to try multiple trips. So people start bringing their families. So that's when you start mm-hmm. seeing um, um, spouses with children migrating to reunite with, with husbands, but still at this point, largely Mexican. Uh, and, Within the last probably five years, we've really had this uptick in in folks who are coming from Central America um, and then and and beyond. Um, but really, right now, I, you know, it went. We went from having like ten percent of people who are non Mexican nationals migrating through places like the Sonora Desert, and now it's more like fifty percent of people who are coming up are coming from from Central America. So those are the. That's kind of the demographic. Um, but but then. You know, you also then have people who are crossing the border through places like either southern Arizona, um, south Texas, or increasingly now the the, the deserts of uh, of southern New Mexico, where, you know, in the in the 80s, you could hop the fence in, in downtown San Diego, you would run from the border patrol, and then you would hop in a truck and someone would, would drive you up into LA. But right. now it's like, you, I mean, you hop you there isn't no, even no fence in most parts of southern arizona you walk into the into the united states and now you've got to walk for 6 to 7 days across this brutal brutal terrain um to get to a place like tucson or um or phoenix and then and then be picked up and then driven someplace else
1: well so i, I just want to say this idea that Heightened border security ca- changed uh, caused a change in migration patterns is something that we uh, talked about in an episode of Adam Ruins Everything, where there was this – I want to make sure I understand it right. There was like this circular flow of migrants. You had folks coming for a season to pick crops or whatever it is they were doing, and then they would head back, and it was like a hey, way to bring money back. But then once it became prohibitively difficult to go back and forth, people – brought families and set down roots like they they went from being, uh, you know, migrant workers to permanent residents, which if you are a xenophobe, (laughs) right, who doesn't like these people, um, that's that's counterproductive by your own standards, because you've turned what was, you know, a migrant workforce into a permanent population. Um, But it seemed like that happened under the noses of most Americans that, you know, I, uh, you know, I think we dated that increase in enforcement from Reagan, um, or, or thereabouts. And that's not what any of those folks or Clinton had in mind.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the rub for a lot of these folks is that, um, you know, they're, they're pushing for a wall. Um, they don't understand that there are upwards of 12 million, 13 million undocumented people here who have been here for a long time in the shadows, um, working, in, uh, in our domestic economy. And the more that we push for, you know, this border security, the, those folks are, I mean, th- those folks who did not want to be here permanently now are here permanently. And, yeah, um, many of them would would prefer to have this fluidity and basically say, look, I'll come here. They're already paying taxes, right? They're already paying taxes on sales tax. They're, they're, a lot of times they're working under f- um, fake papers that are paying into some social security card that, that goes to, to who knows where. Um, you know, These are folks who are, are willing to pay into the system and, and they would love to pay in the system and be able to, to move freely back and forth. But what we have done is we have made them now Americans through this kind of heightened border security, which is really right. um, you know, as, as you put it, it's not what these folks, people who are xenophobes, want um or even really understand. Um and I, I think, you know, you sort of see that tragedy the most when when people get deported and then you hear the backstory about how long they've been here, you know, how they've they've raised kids here, um, you know, all the, the the families that they've that they've that they've built the
1: lives that they've built in the United States because they've not been able to go home. Yeah. Um, well, and let's just talk about the migrant work a little bit because, um, well, sorry, the work isn't migrant, the people are migrants, but, um, the, the work that the folks are doing, you said earlier, if we were to police these workplaces, um, you know, that would change everything. But my understanding is that this type of work is something that the United States has wanted and welcomed at times for decades and decades that there's been this class of work that, you know, uh, maybe back during the Dust Bowl, you had uh, impoverished white farmers, you know, picking crops. But basically since then, um, that work has been done by folks coming over the border. um, And that for decades we had that, hey, migrants would come and then they would go back. That was just how we produced that food supply and did all those other jobs. And then we essentially criminalized what was a uh, a part of the United States economy that had been chugging along for decades. And now that part of the economy is still going. We're still relying on those folks, um, except now they're like brutally criminalized and we've, you know, forced them to, rather than go back and forth, spend a lot of time in, in the United States um, because the border security is so high. Is that, that's what I've gathered. Am I right on with that or am I off? No, completely. I mean, we had the a guest worker
2: program you know, into the um, uh, into the 1960s that allowed people from Mexico and other places to move back and forth. Um, we paid them kind of shit wages. They worked dangerous, difficult jobs. Um, but there were jobs that Americans didn't want to do. Uh, and what ended up happening was there had been a, a kind of expose about the brutality of uh of those people's lives you know the 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 living conditions in these work camps the low wages um the exploitation that was happening um in in different ways an expose was published the american public saw it and was like shocked by it and decided that this guest worker program needed to be completely canceled and so we canceled Hmm. the canceled the bracero program by the time it's canceled though this labor force is too integrated into these industries. And so instead of like just saying, okay, we're going to give up and go home now, people were like, well, we're here. We'll work illegally. We'll go back. We'll we'll keep these jobs. Except now we no longer have the, 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 the minimal, um, we no longer have the minimal protections that we had, that we had previously. And um, you know, you can't eat food today that has not gone through the hands of undocumented people, whether it's fruits or vegetables or, or meat products. Um, and, but they're working in the shadows and they're working in incredibly dangerous jobs. And, you know, all of these Americans who say, well, if these people weren't stealing my jobs, you know, I would be, I would, there'd be more people employed, but nobody wants to work in a, in a pork plant, you know, killing animals all day. Nobody wants to, um, to be, to be picking fruit or vegetables, um, at the, um, at the, at the wages that are um, profitable for for these 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 owners yeah. and so um you know these are jobs that that um, Americans don't want and if we were to pay people uh, an american wage like a one that would make it attractive to people we we all be buying like 10 dollar oranges i mean it's it's just it's <laughs> it's not it's not something that's sustainable at least for in this particular kind of um, economic system
1: well so um let's talk about the folks who are choosing to make that six or seven uh, day trip across the desert. Like, what is that? What is that trip? Like, let's put a more of a human face on it. Um, You know, you, you start in Northern Mexico. Um,
2: you probably, if you're, if you're coming through Arizona, I mean, right now there's, there's sort of three places to come through. There's either Arizona, Arizona, um, South Texas or or New Mexico. And most of my work has been in Arizona. I mean, that's where the, the, the bulk of people were coming from many, many years. So things, things have shifted towards Texas in recent years. But the Arizona experience um, is brutal. I mean, it's killed thousands of people since the, the late 1990s. And that's because you, you, you head up to northern Mexico, you meet up with a smuggler you buy some supplies. So a couple of gallons of water, you get a backpack, you stick some high salt content foods in there, a few first aid things. And then you walk out into the desert and you try to make this trek that can be 60 or 70 miles uh, in 110 degree weather through this mountainous terrain with no, um, no compass, no map. And you're hiking probably in crappy shoes. Um, You're not carrying enough water to survive. I mean, in the middle of the summer, if you're hiking out there, you need to be drinking, you know, something like, um, like, like two gallons of water a day, you can really, you can really only carry the most you can carry is four gallons of water for the trip. Um, and I've tried to lift a gallon of milk. I know how heavy uh, it is. And, you know, so you, you already start this trip without enough water. There's, there are very few water, natural water sources that you're going to encounter. And then of course, you know, you're sweating, you're, 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 you're losing water at a, at a high rate. You're being exposed to um, intense heat and sunlight. Um, I think it's something like there are 14 species of rattlesnakes in the Sonoran desert. There's more rattlesnakes there than any place in the Western hemisphere. Um, wow. You can, you know, you can break an ankle cause you're hiking at night. You can fall down a cliff. You can drown during a monsoon rain in the, in the late summer. You can freeze to death in the winter. Uh, it's one of these places where, you, you have to push your body to the extreme in order to make it. And typically, if you have a, a pre-existing medical condition that you don't know about, it's usually a, a, a time that you find out about it, unfortunately. And so wow. this extreme um, a- exposure is what, is what kills people. And the Border Patrol knows this. I mean, if you look at the policy documents that I've written about extensively, um, Prevention Through Deterrence, when it was designed, it was recognized that if you've forced people over what the Border Patrol characterized as, quote, hostile terrain, that people would be deterred by these extreme environmental conditions. And the thinking was in the mid-90s that if people died, if enough people died in, in the mid-90s, word would, would get around that this was a, a, a dangerous thing and you shouldn't try it. Uh, of course, what ended up happening was you went from having maybe 10 to 30 deaths along the entire U.S.-Mexico border during the course of a year to now you're getting like two or 300 deaths just in Arizona alone. Uh, annually. So hundreds of people start dying, um, uh, per year. And that's a low number. I mean, I've, I've, the work I've done on the forensics suggests that a lot more people die out there and decompose rapidly. You never find them or they die in remote locations. And so those bodies will never be recovered. Wow. But, but you had the spike in migrant death and it still doesn't deter people. Um, you know, and even as, as migration has slowed over the years, it's gotten more dangerous because people are going into more remote locations. So the deaths have gone up even as the numbers um, have gone down. Uh, so, you know, that's really, um, and that's, you know, that's, that's part of, of this policy design, but I mean, people people are dying every day out there. And I think for me, um, you know, having worked with um, families of, of, of the dead, of the disappeared, having encountered human remains myself, I mean, it's a really horrible Thing to see that you know we have this federal policy in place that knows that 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 knowingly puts people in harm's way. It literally kills people. It's recognized as as something that's doing that, and yet there's there's no uproar. It's not considered a, a humanitarian crisis. Um, and as far as the federal government's concerned, this is you know business as usual. This is part of the part of the design of this program is to kill people, and it, you know, of course,
1: has. I mean, so from the government's perspective, you could hear you could hear them say, "Hey, we're not telling people to cross. Um, Like we're we're not we're just saying, hey, the the spots that are easy, we're going to wall off, and hey, they're taking their own lives into their own hands. That's you, you know, let me wash my hands clean of that. But I don't know. It strikes me that if The need is so great that people, you end up funneling people anyway into this uh, other path that does kill them. You do bear a little responsibility for that uh, to some degree. But why is it that folks are willing to make this trek? I mean, when someone is standing there in Mexico with a couple of gallons of water on their back and they're about to walk for six days across a trackless desert... (laughs) um, where they could likely die? Why, why do they, what is, what is the thing that is pushing that person across the the border? Why do so many people make the trip?
2: Well, you know, I think for the, the, the first part of your question, um, it's, a, in terms of like accountability, using the desert is a really savvy way to say mm-hmm. like, not us, man, that's on you kind of thing. Um, right. And if you look at some of the documents, I mean, there's a document that I've written about called appendix five, where the government accountability office was trying to figure out whether or not this program was working or not. And the border patrol couldn't, they didn't have any good metrics about how to measure the the, the effectiveness. But one of the things they came up with was this, um, this, this document that was like, okay, what are some possible metrics showing that this is, that this is effective. And one of them was a rise in migrant death. And so recognizing that if deaths, if deaths go up, it means that this policy is having an impact. And wow. You know, so this is actually in a document that you can I mean, someone put this in a spreadsheet and, and we're, we're trying to find ways to measure this. And yeah. um, hey, we
1: did a good job. More people you know, are dead.
2: Yeah. And oh, of course, fuck. of course, nobody wants to own up to that now, although I'm surprised this administration doesn't own up to that now and be like, you know, in this current era of um, uh, of anti-immigrant kind of rhetoric and all the stuff that people yeah. are, are, you know we put them in cages, we put babies in cages. We might as well also own them to the fact that we kill thousands of people with this policy. Um, but, you know, of course we, uh, we haven't, but there've been other stuff that they've done that hints at that they, that they know that the desert can be, uh, that they can use it to their advantage. So we used to catch people in like Texas or California and send them, we would deport them back to, to Northern Sonora, Mexico, which is right on the border with the Sonoran desert, knowing that, well, if you've been separated from your smuggler in, in California or or Texas, um, the path of least resistance now is going through this desert. And so um, the policy, which was called um, the Alien Transfer and Exit Program, was really saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna move you to this new place because we want to separate you from your smuggler, who is gonna put you in harm's way. Um, but in fact, they want to separate them from smugglers and force them to to try something even even harder. I mean, people work really hard to. To connect with a good smuggler, and so if you separate them, it, it mm-hmm. then makes it a lot more difficult. So you've got people now who suddenly were like, "Well, I was going to try and cross to California, but shit, now I'm in Sonora with no smuggler," and this seems to be the easiest kind of w- way through now. Um, and we, but then the border patrol can just say, "Well, if the desert kills you, it's, it's 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 not our fault." Even though we keep saying the desert can be an ally in this whole process, and we can we can create infrastructure that then f- forces people's hand to to then in, run this kind of this gauntlet. We've done it with other ways. I mean, this whole wait in Mexico for asylum that we've been doing now. With yeah, people. tell
1: me about that. I was curious about that policy and what you thought of
2: it. I mean, we, we are putting them in Mexico because we know that if you, if you deport someone from, from Central America to northern Mexico, <laughs> put them in a foreign location and say, you can apply for asylum, but you have to wait for three months— they have no money. They don't know anybody. They're highly exploitable. um, They're going to be mistreated in all kinds of ways. If not kidnapped, murdered, um, sexually assaulted, and all of those brutal things that that we know are going to happen to them in Mexico will then probably um, deter them from waiting, waiting it out to apply for asylum. But if, but, but the U S can just say, well, we don't have capacity. So we we sent you to, uh, to Mexico to wait it out. It's not our fault if someone killed you or raped you there, you know, that's wow. on Me- that's on Mexico, but but I, I would say, well, we sure as hell have a lot of space to put people in detention centers. We have enough space to, to, <laughs> to arrest them and incarcerate them if we can right. make money off of them. But these other folks, you know, um, and we and Obama did that. He had a, a program called um, plan. Um, it was a program called Plan Frontera Sur, um, basically border south, um, which we recently did a documentary about. Um, it, it was Obama trying to slow down the movement of Central American. Um, um, folks that was happening around around 2014. So they start putting all this political and economic pressure on Mexico to say, look, we can't stop them at the U.S.-Mexico border. It's kind of unsightly when like a thousand kids show up asking for asylum. So what we're asking you, Mexico, our friend, is to stop these folks before they can even get there. So Mexico starts cracking down on the movement of folks through their country who they had no interest in stopping before. But now suddenly when the U.S. says, stop them, arrest them, and, de- and deport them, we'll pay you, we'll help train you, we start doing that, and then and then there's a spike in human rights abuses that are happening in Mexico against these um, against these Central American uh, migrants. But the U.S. can say, "Well, if you get murdered in southern Mexico or or um, um, exploited, kidnapped, whatever, that's on Mexico, right? That's not yeah. on us, you know." And so there's all these kind of degrees of separation that that the U.S. Tries to employ so that we don't look like we're doing, you know, doing something yeah. bad. We're making Mexico do our dirty work. We're making the, the desert kind of wow. do, our, do our dirty work. And,
1: and let's be clear what you're talking about there with the Wait in Mexico policy, those aren't illegal border crossers. Those are folks who are seeking asylum, who are coming from Central America, maybe South America, who are seeking, like, asylum is a legitimate program that we have. People can come <laughs> and say, I seek asylum, and then there's a process. That's not illegal. That's not uh, nefarious for them to do that. That's like, we have a legal system. We're supposed to have a legal system. We do have one it's poorly managed, but we have a legal system for, Hey, that's something that you can do. The American government invites you to some extent to do that. But then when they get here, we're saying, okay, well, while we process your claim, you have to wait in Mexico, a country that, you know, you are not, is not hospitable to you. You don't know people there, as you said. Um, so that's, uh, that is perverse i would have to say cuz those are folks who uh by definition sort of need help right and they're coming they're coming to us in a way of like please i need help and we're saying okay but wait in this very hospitable other city where you don't know anybody where you can be abused uh we that's we're beginning tr- by treating them in a very inhumane way and in with that move oh yeah i mean those are people who are following the rule of law um you know that's essentially
2: like your tired masses yearning to be free, I and mean, we should mm-hmm. change. We should, we should change the Statue of Liberty to be like, wait in Mexico. We'll, we'll call you back in a little bit. Let you know what's what's going on. Um, right? Yeah. I mean, so people don't understand that they're like these are folks who are
1: who are doing everything. This is Five from from an American yeah. Tale here yeah. who yeah. were
2: <laughs> right. That's going to be part three. It's going to be five in Tijuana. Um, you know, <laughs> just like trying to figure it out. Just like cats, cats everywhere. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's a you know, and but to get to your other question about well, why? Yeah, um, you know, for a long time the why was really about about economics. People could not feed their families in Mexico. There was no, um, there was just no way to no way to live, Um, and you know, or you could live, but you could live a very terrible impoverished life where you watch your kids you know um starve and you know no no way to improve your, your your livelihood in that country and of course poverty is still driving a you know a lot of this from all these different countries but you know increasingly with with like central america you've got kids you got people who are leaving central america a lot of them young people who are fleeing not just poverty but fleeing um government corruption and then um organized or semi-organized crime and and violence that puts their lives um, at, at great risk. And so, you know, since 2015, I've been working with Central American migrants who are crossing um, from Honduras up to, to Northern Mexico, but I've been mostly working with smugglers. So Honduran smugglers who um, are charged with, you know, escorting people through Mexico. And these folks will all tell you that, like, I am risking my life to cross Mexico. I'm risking my life to go into the Sonoran desert of Arizona because if I stay in San Pedro Sula, Honduras, I'm going to be murdered. You know, I, I refuse to join a gang or my, my family's being exploited by local gangs. My life has been threatened. They've killed my, you know, my relatives. They're going to kill me next. And so people will say things to me like, I would rather die in the Sonoran desert trying to improve my circumstances than be shot in the back of the head on a street corner in San Pedro Sula by a stranger. Because at least in the Sonoran Desert, there's a there's a a chance of something better, and I've also taken my life into my own hands in in, in some in some way. Mm. But you you literally have people who who are saying like, "Send me anywhere except except back home," because you, to send me back home is an absolute death sentence. Mm. Um, and you know, that's when you people when I think people don't need to people don't understand that in the U.S. when they when they say things like, "I can't believe this." um, you know, this, this person would take their kid out into the desert. Like why would someone do that? And my response would be like, yeah, you can't believe that because you you can't understand the horror, the difficulty that one must be in where the, the best option that you have is to risk your life and the life of your children out in the desert. That is like you taking, you know, control of, of your, of your destiny. Um, I, so I think it's really hard for people to imagine just how brutal it must be to to try to exist in a place like um, like Honduras right now.
1: Yeah. Now, why do those folks come to the United States? Right. Like you know, they there are there's there's East, uh, South, and West as well. Right. So um, why why is the United States uh, uh, the place that they risk so much to come to? Well, you know, um,
2: we've always we've always employed them, There's more, there's more employment here than any place else. I mean, Mexico historically has been very unfriendly to central Americans, although they're increasingly creating their own um, undocumented population of, of central Americans. When, as people aren't able to get in wow. the U S you're starting to see people working under the table and kind of in the shadows in, um, um, in, in Mexico. But you also have people who are coming here um, because this is the, pl- this is the place that we, we sell ourselves as, you know, this is where the American dream happens. This is where you can actually make something of yourself. This is America's myth. This yeah, is yeah. our le- our legend. Yeah. Um, and so you've got that, but you also have people who who are coming here to reunite with family members, right? So you've got all these folks who have been here for a long time, and now um, you know people are people are coming to, to reunite with them. Um, you've got um, you know different pockets of, of 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 ethnic enclaves that are attractive to folks. So like Hondurans are basically you know the folks I work with. They're oftentimes trying to get to like Houston, New Orleans, or New York, where they had these huge, um, you know, Honduran populations, mm-hmm. and so they've already got family there. They've got they've got a, a family um, um, support network that they can that they can kind of rely on, and you know, those places like New Orleans post Katrina, people that were building, um, rebuilding that city, you know, were, were, were Honduran, and so <laughs> you know, you've got these this this long history of these places that have really. Yeah. Um, Uh, encourage the influx of of these folks. And so, um, you know, going south, I mean, if you're in Central America, you're not, I mean, Guatemala, Belize, or or El Salvador, I mean, those are not friendly kinds of options. Um, Mexico is also still dangerous, but um, maybe a little bit better if you can kind of make it work. But um, for a lot of like uh, like Afro-Hondurans, you know, uh, Garifuna speakers from Honduras, who to 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 Mexicans, to Americans, you know, phenotypically we look at them and say, oh, African-American. Mm. You can't really hide out if you're black in Mexico. I mean, there's a lot of racism against against dark-skinned yeah. people in Mexico. And being black in Mexico is not a pleasant thing. And, and they so, speak
1: a different, is it a different language that you mentioned?
2: Yeah, so they, a lot of those folks um, will speak Garifuna, but also Spanish. Um, but, I mean, you know, there are some Hondurans who can pass for Mexican and sort of stay under the radar. Although even that's hard, I mean. Phenotypically you know, Hondurans tend to be um you know either more admixture with Africans or um or fairer skin. Um they speak differently. It's really hard for people to hide accents. Um so there's mm-hmm. all these things that like that signal someone as or, or they're indigenous, which also, you know, being indigenous in Mexico is, is um is, is as bad or, or worse than being black in Mexico. Um, mm. So there's many things that make it impossible for folks to want to stay there. But but coming to the U.S., they can hide out. their populations of people that look like them where, um, you know, once you're here, uh, it, life is a lot easier than than in a place like Mexico.
1: And this is why understanding why people are <laughs> migrating is so important and understanding the people who are coming, coming across because, you know, we have this tendency in the United States to see everyone who's migrating as a monolith, um, I'd I say, oh, they're Mexicans, but also, uh, to say, okay, they're Hondurans. And to understand those distinctions between folks and those, those really matter as much as distinctions between Americans do. Um, well, I want to, uh, learn more about the folks that you've met in your work and, and hear some of those stories, but we have to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Jason DeLeon. So, Jason, you said that you're employing, uh, you know, anthropology, ethnology, archaeology um, in the undocumented migration project. Um, What does that look like? How do you actually go about doing the work and and finding out about these folks? So depending on the depending on the day, um, you know,
2: the work can look very different. So some aspects of it involve like lots of hiking in the Arizona deserts. Collecting the things that migrants have left behind, documenting, you know, um, campsites where migrants are sleeping, changing clothes, um, resting for a little bit, and leaving things behind. Uh, that's the kind of archaeological um, element of it. So mapping, photographing, collecting. We've got an archive of about nine thousand objects that live at UCLA that are in my lab that are, um, you know, artifacts that migrants have, have left behind. They're in archival boxes. They're they're cataloged. They're in a big database that we that we that we use um, to study this stuff. Um, on a different day, it could be spending time in a, in a migrant shelter, inter- interviewing folks who are about to to cross the desert or who have just been deported. Um, it could be working with families of uh, of the dead or the disappeared in Latin America or in the US, you know, interviewing them about their family, family members and documenting their experiences. Um, it could be um, the forensic work. so for for many years, we had been doing decomposition experiments um, to understand what it would look like. Um, if a person dies in, out in the desert. Um, and we've been, we've been using um, pigs m- like, like m- many forensic scientists who use pigs as proxies for, for human bodies. And so we've, hmm. we've used pigs in different contexts, um, you know, deceased pigs who are then um, dressed in clothes
1: that migrants would, would be wearing. Um, yeah. It's a weird, I mean, it's, it is. <laughs> Sounds uh, cute. I mean, I, no, I put a cute image no, in my head. No. I know it's, it's not cute no. on a number of levels, but. It did. I did like the picture that came into my head. That's all I'll say. Well, I'll tell you what, the first. It was time a we... pig
2: wearing clothes and a hat. Oh, no. I mean, the first time we had we did this, um, you know, I we worked we had a, we ordered these animals from a from a, a meat science laboratory. And so this guy comes out um, with, you know, with live animals. And of course, um, you know, it's a it's a brutal thing you know, here I am, I'm working on this project, I'm trying to end violence. And then um, I'm buying these animals that are going to be killed on sites. You know, so I'm perpetuating this violence against these animals, kind of in, in the name of science. Um, so I have this complicated relationship with, uh, you know, with, with this issue. But um, yeah, you know, but the pigs have been really important for us. But I'll tell you, the first time that we did this, this guy comes out, he brings these animals out. And um, he's like, okay, where do you want these things euthanized? And I said, okay, we're going to do one here. And then I want to do one in, in broad daylight. And I want to do one under this tree over here. And so, um, and I've written about this a lot in, in my first book about the ethics of this. And then also the, the brutality of what it's like to watch an animal be, be killed. Uh, but this guy, he kills this animal. And then I say to him, um, okay, can you just give us a few minutes here? I've got to, I'm going to put some clothes on this animal. And the guy is like, <laughs> he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I, got, I want to he's and so he's like okay i guess and so we you know and, and we had been really interested in in um what happens to women in this context so so we put on like bra panty um pants a shirt <laughs> shoes and this guy looks at me and he goes man i've seen a lot of weird stuff <laughs> In this job, he's like, but I don't know what kind of twisted shit that you fucking guys are on, like, what the fuck? And
1: I didn't know anthropologists yeah. and archaeologists were such perverts.
2: He was just like, <laughs> like, holy shit. And and so I kind of explained to this guy, it's like, look, you know, people die out in the desert. We don't really know what happens to them. Um, yeah. there's, there's a lot of speculation. And these animals, we're, we're going to monitor them. Um, you know, we're going to monitor these, um, these animals with um, – with trail cameras to see, you know, how fast they decompose? Who are the scavengers that are kind of coming out here? Um, and once I sort of explained it to that guy, um, then he was like, oh, you know, that makes sense. And then it was funny. He goes, well, he goes, you know, you know, I had a cousin who crossed the border and and disappeared. We have no idea what, what happened to him. And mm. I said, well, you know, this project is really, is trying to understand what could have happened to him. Um, but he was like, you know, can I just take some pictures of this back to show my boss? And, you know, everybody's just like, <laughs> like, <laughs> what the, you know, these (laughs) perverts are out. I mean, people just, I mean, it's a weird, it it is a weird thing.
1: Um, I love that image of him going like, yeah. Oh, Oh, I get it. Yeah. That's serious. That happened to a fan member of mine. Anyway, let me get some shots of this. This is some weird shit, (laughs) you know, but, but, but you know, that stuff has
2: been really important over the years for um, being able to say people die and they disappear. I mean, we had animals that were went from fully fleshed and fully clothed to um completely disarticulated defleshed with the personal effects you know the wallet all that stuff spread far and wide disappeared um in the matter of like 36 hours uh, wow this stuff really i mean and i can i can send you guys you know some videos um you know if that would be helpful for people to see this sure Um, you know and we did a we did we did this a couple of years ago uh, a set of experiments and there was someone from like USA Today, who was doing a story on the the experiments. And he came out to see one of the pigs. And all it was, was two pairs, it was a pair of shoes kind of laid out where where, 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 like in position, and then the head, the skull. Um, And that was it. Everything is just a big stain. And And the guy was like, oh man, you guys didn't have to have to stage this for me before I got here to take pictures. And I was like, stage, like, we don't touch this stuff. This is what it actually ends up looking like. I mean, it is this shocking that you can go from like a 200 pound animal fully clothed to just a pair of shoes and a head. We don't know where the rest of that stuff, because vultures come in, they pick stuff up and they fly away with it.
1: Um, yeah. So that, and that's why you're saying there's so many, uh, there might be so many deaths we don't know about because people are going out there, they're they're dying of exposure out in the desert um, and then their bodies are just gone within 36 hours? In some, in some instances, yeah. I mean, and we wow. had things, you know, people had been telling me that, you know, if
2: someone in our group dies, oftentimes we'll, we'll cover them with rocks to protect them from from scavengers and from the elements. When we did that on an animal, that was like the fastest decomp rate <laughs> that we saw because everybody sort of forgot that, you know, rocks conduct heat. And so vultures uh. need a body to be at a certain um, stage of decomp, um, before they'll start, they'll, they'll start scavenging. I mean, it, you know, it takes several days, um, and, and a lot of heat to, to for this, for the flesh to get to a certain kind of um, state for them to kind of come in when we covered these animals and when rocks <coughs> vultures were in there and just, you know, and super, super quick ripping stuff out and, and completely, you know, e- eating, eating these bodies. And, you know, when we began this, these experiments two weeks after we started doing this, these experiments, we came across the body of a 31-year-old woman from Ecuador, um, a woman named Maricela Zaguipuya who she'd only been dead like three or four days, um, Mm. was still fully fleshed. um, But, you know, we encounter her body. It's this really shocking thing. And vultures are already there just kind of waiting, you know, just circling um, and and waiting to, um, you know, to start ravaging her her body. Um, And so, the first year we did this you know it really kind of drove home the fact that why we were doing it and, and kind of the, the importance of it um you know we knew that that she was was about to be um, um consumed by by these by these vultures um and you know who knows what, what would, have, would have been um left of her and unfortunately you know so we, we started doing those experiments in 2012 we encounter her body um in, in during that summer I end up following the story of, of, of her life back in Ecuador, her family in New York. Um, and then a year later, she has a a 15 year old relative who disappears on the same trail. Um, and we haven't, we haven't found him since we've been, we've been looking for him for seven years. And, you know, these experiments suggest that, um, that he's probably never going to be found. I mean, it it doesn't, if, if it takes just, you know, 36 to 72 hours for animals to rip a body apart. What is the likelihood of finding him after seven years now?
1: Wow. That's, um, man, uh, why, why did you go into this work? What, what's, what's important about it to you? Um,
2: I didn't expect to be doing this kind of work. Um, you know, I went, I went to college cause I wanted to be Indiana Jones, um, and i re- figured out that job was taken um and that's really not how archaeology works <laughs> um so but i still wanted to be in in ar- into archaeology so i you know i went to school um my undergrad to do archaeology i started working in california um and i started working in mexico but you know was looking at very ancient kinds of things and i went to graduate school to pursue a phd in ancient archaeology so i start working in mexico um my dissertation was on stone tools, uh, ancient stone tools at this um, site called San Lorenzo in, in lowland Veracruz, Mexico. Uh, and that's sort of really what I thought I was going to um, go on to, to work on for the rest of my career. But during the course of these excavations that I was working on in these rural communities, you end up working alongside um, working class folks who are getting paid to dig ditches. And, um, you know, these are people who, who are coming from these um, rural communities. A lot of them are getting ready to migrate, or maybe they've they've previously migrated. And so I got to know a lot of women and men who had either tried to cross the Sonora Desert and had almost died, people who had spent time in the U.S. as migrants and been deported or returned home, or folks who were getting ready to migrate themselves. And, you know, you spend a lot of time in these excavation units with those folks talking about, you know, all kinds of stuff. And it was sort of through um, those stories that I was hearing that I became more and more interested in 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 those experiences and and those stories been the stuff that was actually coming out of the ground. Um, you know, and and part of this was shaped by the fact that I, you know, um, my parents were, you know, are, are from, I've come from two immigrant families. Um, I partly grew up on the U S Mexico border in South Texas. Um, uh, you know, I had grown up around immigrants my entire life. I'd had many family members who were, who were undocumented. And so I kind of felt like I knew something about undocumented migration, um, prior to that point. But but I really didn't know anything. And once I started hearing these stories, I was like, Oh my god, this is so shocking! I can't believe that this stuff is go- is, is going on. And why is there not a lot of anthropology kind of happening ar- around this stuff? And so yeah. I just des- you know I decided around around twenty uh, <clears throat> two thousand. Seven two 2008, that I wanted to, I was going to finish the dissertation on ancient stone tools and completely jump ship and do something, um, do something related to, to migration.
1: And what's so important about using anthropology and archaeology? I mean, are there other people doing this? And, and if not, you know, why, why do you feel it's important to do? Well, in the beginning, the archaeology was a way for me to,
2: to think about this process in a different kind of way. And if I could show people artifacts and use even that language, like what happens if I start talk, talking about border crossings as cultural heritage, as as American history, as something that produces artifacts that should be revered, that should be um, um, conserved and um, and understood as, as as you know as as part of this this great American um, his, um, story, uh, you know, the Sonora Desert. Uh, as like this new kind of Ellis Island, um you know archaeology became an important tool to to generate new kinds of conversations about this issue, but also to give a kind of a, a different type of insight. I mean people had been working with uh, on issues of migration before before me you know talking to 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 folks about their experiences, um, but the archaeological spin I think was something um relatively new, and then suddenly people were like oh um here's a here's this old story I thought I knew about, but now." I'm confronted with it through these materials.
1: Um, yeah.
2: I'm thinking about it in different kinds of ways. Um, and so that, that, for me, that, you know, I tell my students, ant- the best part of anthropology for me is that we can make anything fucking weird. I mean, truly. Like, I spend my day walking around looking at stuff and going like, huh, wh- why do we do it that way? You know, wh- <laughs> where, the, where the hell did that come from? And, you know. Why are people doing that? You know, and so for me, that's what anthropology brings to the table is like these these different kinds of perspectives that then suddenly this thing that you took for granted all of a sudden now is completely weird. I mean, I teach a class called the anthropology of rock and roll, which a big chunk of it is about how records are made. So these students are like, why do I need to know what an SM57 microphone is? And why do I need to know about like how to pan something into a left or right speaker and, and how to mix like, you know, five parts of a drum I'm like, well, because those are all cultural processes. We, we make these cultural constructs. We put them through the speakers. You consume them and you don't even think about them. But if I start asking you like, okay, where's the bass drum in the mix? Where's the snare? Where's the hi-hat? Does it look like, does it sound like the drummer's facing you or that you're standing, you're standing behind the drummer? And then they're like, oh my God, you've just ruined music for me. I can't put on a <laughs> set of headphones now without thinking about, you know, how the drums are mixed. And for me, I'm like, that's anthropology. Like that's my, my whole day is spent like going, how can I make this weird? What, you know? and, and so with undocumented migration, I mean, it, I, I, I think it's such an important issue. And the lens of anthropology, I think, can help force a different way of thinking about it, um, which then mm-hmm. I hope can, can generate new kinds of conversations.
1: Well, and anthropology is – correct me if I'm wrong. I, I didn't study anthropology, and I wish I had, frankly, now – uh, maybe I can maybe I can find a community college course once I'm allowed to leave my house again. Yeah, <laughs> uh, everything's but, online now, right? So, okay. Yeah. Okay, I'll take a I'll take a one of those massively online courses, whatever. Uh, about it, I'll go onto I don't know website and and download some lectures. But anthropology is the study of humanity, right? Of 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 human things things people do. Yep. <laughs> and uh, we we have this image of Okay, that's, uh, you know, the old National Geographic uh, white folks going out and looking at uh, that's that's the stereotype of of what the field is. But um, in this broader way, just studying humanity, it does seem like, yeah, that's what we need to be doing if we want to understand this issue. This is like a thing that humans are doing that we need to know more about and that we poorly understand. So uh, like. So what I like about your work is is confronting it makes me realize that that this is something that oh yeah we we need to actually study I mean you know the human condition
2: is is so fascinating I mean I mean like I think anthropology is relevant to like every aspect of our lives and I and I guarantee you right now there are anthropologists who are starting to think about projects on how the coronavirus is shaping sociality right um, yeah how Zoom is now, you know, <laughs> become this crucial part of our lives. I mean, the fact that, you know, I'm having virtual happy hours with a bunch of anthropologists in all these different parts of the world. Um, yeah. there's someone right now thinking about, okay, well, how do I how do I make this weird? How do I take you know this this situation yeah. and think about it kind of anthropologically? And for me it's it's just important because It'll improve our understanding of ourselves, how we interact with each other. And and we are at such a moment of crisis as a species, whether it's global warming, this pandemic, um, the impending kind of economic crash, and we need anthropologists to help us understand how we're going to get through all this stuff, you know, what, what, what's been our, our, our historical responses to similar events. Um, what are, what are the things that are happening now that we can think about kind of culturally, um, You know, why don't boomers want to stay home and believe that this is a real thing? (laughs) Why is Gen X kind of like saying, like, I got this? You know, there's all, you know, kind of cultural differences that are, I mean, so for me, anthropology is is so crucial. We should be the experts giving advice about all this stuff when people are asking for information. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of times, you know, the academy is structured in a way that many of my colleagues either aren't very good at translating their work. Or, or don't necessarily see value in it, but as far as I'm concerned, we should have anthropologists at every table for every conversation we're having um, about our species. And I and I really try to teach my students. I say, look, I grew up in an era where you know anthropology for me was Indiana Jones or yeah, some like old white dude who goes out to like the South Pacific to look at a bunch of like half naked um, brown people and then report yeah. back and for me the most interesting anthropology is the stuff that I can see in my everyday lives. And I, so I tell Mm -hmm. my students, I mean, like when, when I teach undergrads, like how to think about anthropology and, and and where to do field work, you know, I start with things like, um, there's a a movie called American juggalo. That's about, um, you know, the gathering of the juggalos that happens, you know, every summer. And it's the most kind of beautiful, freaky, um, culturally kind of interesting sort of phenomenon. I tell my students like, that's where you should be doing ethnography. Yeah. You don't don't need to go far away. I mean, there's all kinds of weird shit happening in your backyard.
1: I remember when juggalos broke big, when, you know, when America, the America became aware of them and, and it was mostly just making fun of it. Right. Like, Oh, look at this, look at this silly thing. Look at these silly people. And I remember seeing videos of it, of, of, you know, how, how positive people feel there and how it's a family and, and realizing that this is a whole part of the country, these are folks who I don't share the same experience with, you know, who are living in a completely different America from me, and are coming together in this way I don't understand. I remember having that feeling of uh, my question was like, "What is this?" Like, I I want to understand this phenomenon more, and I I still don't feel I understand it that well. So I think that's a perfect example.
2: I mean, I look at those guys and I'm like, they're so happy. you know right they're living the dream yeah Uh, and i'm i mean you know and i tell my students i'm like we're not here to watch this i'm not showing this because i want to make fun of this i'm showing this because i'm jealous of this and i want to understand how someone how someone can be in a world and be in a group where you feel you know you have this feeling i mean i feel alienated all the time from folks and i'm like and these folks are just like come join us let's get down let's all be one and it's like yeah for me you know putting anthropology into those spaces um it is both really, I think, enlightening to understand people who are different from you, but also at the same time, I think, to, to, to just show how similar that we can that we all are. Um, yeah. Once we start kind of you know looking at stuff more more closely and trying to to be open minded about about um, you know people who who on the surface seemingly have nothing to do with, with our own experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, understanding other people, un- actually understanding an issue and getting down into it is so. Critical And to me, it should always be the first step before forming an opinion on it, right? Before I talk about, hey, here's what I think about migration, I need to understand migration first. I need to understand the people who are crossing, what their experiences are like, what happens to them, the, the broader sociopolitical forces at play, the economics of it. Like, there's so much richness there that you can and need to dive into before you... Start, you know, spouting off or coming out with policies or anything like that, and and the the gap between how deep your analysis is and all the all the ideas you're turning up and and all the facts you're revealing and the shallowness of the policies and you know media understanding we have of the issue is so stark to me. Like I, I think about my writing about
2: about migrants, and you know, I don't really want to write a. Uh, you know, I, I say like, I'm not trying to write immigration stories. I'm not trying to write migration stories. I'm trying to write um, human stories so that someone can read it and go and not see a migrant or an immigrant, but maybe see themselves through these stories about people. And yeah. then they just happen to be people who are migrating. Um, but, you know, I want someone to pick up a pick up a, a book and go, you know oh, this woman, Maricela, she leaves Ecuador because she's struggling at home. You know, she didn't have, you know, access to these things and is trying to improve the lives of her, of her kids. I want someone to go, well, well, that's me too. What would I do in that situation? You know, and it just so happens that this person, their only option is is to migrate. And I think that, um, you know, that's the sort of anthropology that I want to do is how can I increase um, our understanding of other people's experiences and, um, can I can I tell a story that's relatable to to a, to a reader? Because I think at the end of the day, I really want people to to, to look at the work and read these stories, and I want them to, to feel like I do about these people that I've become connected to, you know, just through um, my my human desire to understand someone else's experience, and can that translate for other folks? I mean, that's for me what anthropology um, should be doing, and, and I think when it when it's when it's at its best is when people can read something or 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 see some translated anthropological work and go, huh, that's just like me, you know, yeah. that's not so foreign. Um, and it's, you know, I, I it might be hard that they're wearing face paint and they're huffing glue, you know, that's a more difficult kind of thing. Um, but, but I'm working on that one too. But, you know, but I think, I, I, I think with the, at least with the immigration stuff, you know, working class folks can, can understand that, it's just a global phenomenon and many people are suffering and just trying to make ends meet.
1: Yeah. Well, where can people go to uh, find out more about your work and to, and to learn more about uh, you know what you've uncovered and what do you hope folks listening from this will take away from them and their understanding uh, of migration? Well, you know, they can go to our, our website undocumented migration
2: And that's got, that's kind of the portal for, for all the different, projects that we've been doing um my first book the the land of open graves uh you can get that on amazon there's also an a, i think a um a, an audio version um book of it um radio lab did a three part um series based on the book um called the border trilogy so people can 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 kind of get the, the, the cliff note version of that um and if they want more information on like prevention through deterrence, the Arizona stuff, um, m- migrant kinds of death. Um, but, I, you know, I would encourage people just to go and kind of explore and they can learn more about these issues through the, um, those different, um, uh, platforms. And then also, you know, we, while well, we were getting ready to launch this global exhibition in May called hostile terrain 94, um, we've been delayed with the opening. Um, <laughs> so just a little bit where we're, most of our shows are going to happen in the fall. Um, but it is a global participatory exhibition that involves the construction of a giant wall map of the U S Mexico border that has handwritten toe tags for um, over 3,200 people who have lost their lives since the late 1990s. Wow. And this exhibition is launching in approximately 150 locations on six continents. Um, Probably not starting in May, but um, we, we we hope at least by the end of the summer, the, yeah. many, many of these shows will start to happen. But we um, we partner with with folks around the globe and, and we invite people to come to this exhibition and to fill out toe tags for the dead, to write out the names, the age, um, the location where they were found, the condition of the bodies, and then to mount these toe tags in the exact location of where those bodies were found. We're anticipating between 60 and 100,000 participants who are gonna help build these exhibitions all across the United States, Latin America, um, Europe, uh, Africa, Asia, people will come together through these different community organizations um, to to build the exhibition and then also to learn more about the issue through through other, um, we've got a a, a augmented reality uh, component that people can scan with their phone, they can hear migrant stories, they can virtually tour the deserts, but they can also learn about how immigration is impacting those local communities, um, through these, through these partnerships. And so if people are interested in that, they can get involved. They can go to our website, hostile terrain, 94.org, or if they go to the, the undocumented immigration project, it'll take you there, um, as well, but they can get involved. It's, it's a free to the, it's open to the public. Um, we have multiple shows in LA. We've got, um, a bunch of cool shows in, um, in, in Latin America, um, in Germany in Italy, uh, all these places that we probably can't go to until the fall, but, um, <laughs> right. you know, Everybody's in a, in a holding pattern, but, you know, we, we do hope that when it launches, it'll be a way to create this kind of global um, um, witnessing of, of migrants um, suffering, but then also a way to kind of stand in solidarity with, with
1: migrants around the globe. Yeah. Well, when we're able to leave our houses again, I hope people go check out those shows and uh, go to the undocumentedmigrationproject.org. Jason, I can't thank you enough for being here to talk to us and and for your work. Thank you. Adam, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you want to safeguard yourself like that and live with a peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeletemecom Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeletemecom Adam. So thank you once again to Jason DeLeon for coming on the show. And as promised, here is the second part of today's episode. This is a conversation with Dr. John Cohen, the head of Bioreference, a lab that is working to make more coronavirus tests and to test as many Americans as possible. Just to give you another view of uh, of an interesting American who is on the ground working to fight coronavirus today, let's go straight to the interview. Uh, Dr. Cohen, thank you for being with us.
3: Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to your audience.
1: <laughs> where Where am I talking to you from? Uh, I'm in my uh, very makeshift home studio right now. Where are you at?
3: I am actually in my office in Elmwood Park, New Jersey, which is about 10 miles from the GW Bridge.
1: So you have a company called Bioreference. You've met with the White House about uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, what is your company's role in our fight against it, and how are you thinking about coronavirus?
3: So uh, first off, we're uh, Bioreference Laboratories. Uh, we're Our holding company is called Opgo, which is publicly traded. Bioreference laboratory is one of the largest commercial laboratories in the country. We serve 10 million people a year. We do about 40,000 laboratory testing every single night. We do about 140,000 pickups every month. We have laboratories in California, Texas, New Jersey, uh, Maryland, and Florida, but we serve all fifty states. So our role in the uh, coronavirus is uh, is one is one of actually doing the specific testing for the for the virus. Uh, as a national laboratory, with a couple of other national laboratories, we have the ability to and the infrastructure to actually pick up specimens. Uh, bring them to the lab and report back the results through our uh, IT systems. The reason I say that is most university laboratories and certainly most state laboratories do not have that that, that ability and that kind of logistics network. So we actually could serve most of the country as opposed to being in specific areas of specific locations.
1: I see. So you have a crucial role to play in this, Um, but there's been a lot of talk about these tests. Do we have enough of them? It seems as though we don't. Uh, First, first tell me, uh, what is the test and how does it work?
3: Uh, Great question. So so the way this works is the patient has to be identified as someone who should get tested. That's the way it's currently working. So so whatever mechanism, uh, there are three actually. One is the the state or county may take your intake information and say, yes, you have the symptoms and you should get tested. The second is you may go to your physician and your physician says, yes, you need to get tested, and actually would test you. The well, not test you, but would actually do the swab. I'll talk about that in a second. And the third is you may be in the hospital and the hospital may send us the test. So what happens is that we have these three different sources that are occurring right now. So the way it works is you need to have a swab. And the swab is what's called a nasal pharyngeal swab. And all that means is that you put a Q-tip. It's a very small Q-tip, very thin, but it actually goes into your nose to the back of your throat to, to, uh, to actually swab the back of your throat. That swab is then uh, cut off, essentially, and put into a little vial that has some fluid in it. That fluid, put a cap on that, and then the fluid is sent to the laboratory with a requisition. And in that requisition has, of course, all of your necessary information. We then run the test, I'll talk about that, and we send the result back to the ordering entity. The whole issue around testing is we stood up what was called the CDC test originally, and that was a very slow manual test. Imagine it is, we bring this little tube in, we actually have to pipette off the fluid into a bunch of plates. We we then extracted the, the actual RNA, which is what the virus is made of, and then we have to put that on another platform. It was a very manual process. At yeah, that's same, a lot.
1: That's a lot of steps. You're like working with a little eyedropper there.
3: Yeah, it's a that's a pipetter. It is a lot of steps, which is why it was it was relatively slow. And when you when we brought up the CDC tests, you could only run a couple of hundred a day. At the same time, we made the decision to bring it up on what's called automated platform. So we have platforms where you take that same little vial, you put it right onto the machine, it analyzes it. it, it I'm sorry, it extracts the virus mm-hmm. and then it puts right in for analysis. And so it's all automated. Uh, and it's also not only automated; which runs runs quicker. But in addition, we can run more more samples on the larger automated machines. Um, so that's the way it works. So what we've done is we've brought up several different of these analyzers. So uh, I tell people, "Tom, imagine imagine you're uh, you're in a car or different kinds of car. Certain cars can run faster than others, and they run on certain certain different types of gasoline. And that's eventually what we have to do. We have to figure out the we have to." decide which of the recipes that the that the vendors provide us that each of these different types of machines actually run on. Mm-hmm. So what we did is, is we did that on all on four other platforms so that we could bring up as many as much testing capacity as possible, which is why we've got to 10,000 a day, 15,000 a day soon and by next week we should be able to do 20,000 tests a day.
1: That's, uh, I mean, that's fantastic, because obviously we need as much testing capacity as possible. And so thanks for speeding that up. Uh, But yeah, I I need to ask, why has there been a slow start in getting this process sped up, especially in the earliest days when we were getting our first cases popping up here and there was when, you know, you immediately started hearing the news about we don't have enough tests uh, Etc. Uh, why, in your view, was there that sort of systemic failure to be able to test on a wider scale?
3: Well, I'll just comment on, on what happened. What happened was is the CDC and the FDA lifted the regulatory restrictions back about two weeks ago, somewhere around February twenty eighth. When we when we essentially received, the, we knew what the we knew what the sequence was, the RNA sequence to begin to do the analysis to bring the test up, but they, they significantly changed the regulatory environment at that time to, re, to, to give us the ability as a commercial laboratory to actually develop the test. And like I said, we first had to go in and, and take their recipe and figure out how to do it. And at the mm-hmm. same time, like I said, the platform manufacturers, those people that are building these machines, had to first figure out how they were going to reconfigure their machines to run for COVID-19 testing. That took them some time to develop what I call their recipe. Once they developed that, then they gave it to us, and then we then still have to validate the test. And that means that our test is a, is a very high quality test with, with very high sensitivity and specificity. But we had to make sure that we provided that kind of testing, that kind of ability on each one of these different platforms. So it just took, it just took time for us to get up to speed once the restrictions were lifted.
1: So, the CDC restrictions played a pretty crucial part in the pipeline issue before yeah, the two weeks ago.
3: yeah, the CDC and the CDC and the FDA regulatory environment, correct.
1: Uh, how do you feel about our testing, you know system going forward? Are you concerned,, uh, you know, the number of cases that we have are going up dramatically day by day? Are you, feeling good, you know, you're, you're in charge of this national laboratory. Are you uh, feeling good about our national ability to maintain our testing capacity? Or are you concerned that we're going to still be falling behind as the pandemic becomes more widespread?
3: So, uh, uh, several different, you know, the pieces of that. So, let's look at current capacity. Current capacity is really hard to get wrap your arms around because I don't know, sitting here today, how many other laboratories have the... I know that there's a couple of national labs, including ourselves. But beyond that, I don't know who else has the platforms in place to bring up what kind of capacity I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I, I can tell you what the current the demand is. And the, the demand right now is extraordinary. The number of phone calls and requests we're getting is almost nonstop from uter- wow. from hospitals, cities, states, frontline emergency workers, hospital workers, large employers. Everybody has a desire right now to figure out how they're gonna get tested. So, you know, the demand is almost insatiable at this point. You know, so I don't know what that number I don't know what the demand number is, but it's very, very high right now. Our ability to meet that demand is very, very low, unfortunately. Um, so that's that's the dilemma we're in. The the next so I tell people the, the current people that are getting prioritized are number one is people in the hospital. After that, it's people with symptoms. And then we believe that the next category should be first responders and medical workers who mm-hmm. are exposed. So when I mean by first responders, I'm meaning police, fire. EMTs, etc. Now, after that, we get through that tranche, and then the question is going to be how often should they be tested, which is another interesting debate. After that, the next tranche, of course, is going to be people themselves that say, "Listen, I want to get tested. I think I may have it. I think that I was exposed." Yeah. You know. You know so, so uh, sitting here today, I have no idea how many millions of people are going to need to be tested.
1: Well, I mean, that's, uh, I know there's probably people sitting at home listening to this thinking, hey, it would just give me peace of mind if I could be tested. I got a tickle in my nose or I shook a lot of hands last Thursday. And, you know, I'd like to know so I'd know if I can go visit my grandmother, right? Or or something else like that. It would, it would help me out to know that. And, and the prospects that it'll be such a long time, if any, before those people are eligible for a test is that's tough to tough to take.
3: That's exactly right. So I, I think we'll get there at some point. Uh, I would tell you that one of the biggest gaining issues is the actual swap. So, so right now, um, I'm sure you've heard heard about all of the drive throughs And the reason yes. that the drive-thrus work, so we're the, we're the company that partnered with, with New York State. We partnered with New York City Health and Hospital Corporation. We've partnered with several cities. We have multiple drive throughs that we're supporting around the country. Um, so the way the reason the drive-throughs is a, essentially an elegant solution right now is you drive up, of course you roll down your window. Somebody has protective gear on. They swab you, and then you drive off. What that does is it protects the hospitals, emergency rooms, urgent cares, physicians' offices, etc. Um, so that's the solution now. The, the problem is is you know that's that's a lot to do to get a test. Plus getting yeah. the test itself is as I said is actually no fun. So <laughs> yeah. the uh, so the, the question is going to be, is there is there a better way for people to actually either test themselves or an easier way to get tested? Um, those developments are in process, um, mm. but I can't tell you when that's going to happen yet. Uh,
1: are, those, are those developments that you're working on, or is that work that you know of that's being done elsewhere? It's work that I know of that's being done elsewhere. Got it. Well, looking at it from your vantage point, and you can feel free not to comment on this if you like, but do you think there's anything uh, about the way the American medical system is organized, about how we, uh, you know, the, our, our government agencies have handled this or, the, you know, the uh, where power is invested in different parts of the system that – led to the slow response that we're all feeling do you is there you know as compared to say other nations you know do you, does, do you have any feeling about it from your point of view
3: no <laughs> sorry
1: <laughs> no that's I, fine I
3: actually, no and i'll be honest. i don't i actually spent almost no time looking backwards we mm. are very internally focused uh, my people, my folks, meaning the, the people who work here, I'm just the guy that talks about it. The people who work here are honestly working 24-7 to deliver these tests, to develop the technology, to do what needs to be done. So we are totally internally focused on delivering a product to as many people as possible. So I, I only look forward. I don't look back.
1: Uh, well, talking about those folks, I'm just curious, how do you keep uh – Uh, a workplace like yours where you're, you know, you're dealing with infectious materials um, and, you know, everyone else is staying home, right? Even my, uh, uh, in television comedy, we're all working from home, right? Uh, Now you, you folks don't have that luxury, but uh, how do you go about, uh, you know, keeping your, keeping your workers safe?
3: Well, Well, first off, you know, so we run just a, what's called a highly complex lab. So we do viral testing. We bring up viral tests for the flu. We do, you know, HIV testing. We do high-end genetic testing. So, as a highly complex lab, it's actually something we do every single day. So, the people who work in the lab are used to it, the use of the procedures. We are moving people around, quite honestly. So, we have other workers and other people, you know, who, who are doing other jobs. So, we've reshifted our personnel to make sure that we can accommodate the volumes that are coming in relative to this. Yeah. Um, so that's the way we're handling it right now.
1: Uh, Do you have any uh, thoughts, you know, for folks listening at home who are obviously uh, uh, a little bit nervous about the pandemic, uh, you know, wondering again, should I get tested, uh, you know, are looking for good sources of information. Um, Is there any, any advice you give to people in those situations about how to think about uh, testing for this disease?
3: Well, first off I I'm a physician just, you know, so I, Um, I strongly believe you need to listen to what people are saying. If you, you know, if you can try and stay at home and limit your exposure to other people, I mean, I I believe you guys, you can go out into a park and take a walk. You know, you, you should, you should do what's necessary to wash your hands, keep your exposure down to a minimum. if not, you know, zero. Um, and listen to what people are saying. The more people do that, the quicker this thing is going to get over with. Um, Um, So it's really important that you listen to what people are saying uh, because it really does make a difference.
1: Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I'll let you get back to your very important work. Please get back to it and keep expanding our testing capacity as much as you can.
3: Well, thank you very much. It's really a, it's really fun and a privilege to, to do this. Uh, so keep up the good work that you're doing is uh, in keeping the American public actually you know, up to speed and informed of what's going on.
1: We're doing our best and, and that's really all any of us can do in this situation is, is do what we can with what we can. So uh, I'll take it and, and thanks again to you. Thanks for being on the show.
3: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you again to Dr. John Cohen for coming on the show and to Jason DeLeon for doing his interview as well. That is it for us this week on Factually. I want to thank our producer, Dana Wickens, our engineer, Brett Morris, our researcher, Sam Roudman, Andrew WK for our theme song. You can find me at adamconover.net or on social media at Adam Conover, wherever you like. Until next week, we'll see you next time on Factually.
0: That was a hate gum podcast.